listen, um, we really want to do this Agile thing, but we tried it before and Agile doesn't work here. Agile doesn't work here is one of the most common things I hear from organizations that are struggling with Agile in some way, shape or form, right? So that's the first thing is, oh yeah, welcome. What are you what are you saying we should be doing? Agile? Oh, no, 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 that doesn't work here. We tried that. We tried that Agile thing here a couple of years ago. It doesn't work. When you dig deeper, you find out that when they say it doesn't work there and you, and you ask the question, well, what have you actually done before? Just asking to find out. And it turns out that they, they say they've adopted some theoretical practices, adoption of Agile events, and they say it doesn't work for them. So, for example, the most common thing I hear is our teams are on two-week sprints. We've been on two-week sprints for a while, not seeing any value out of that. Right? We're not seeing these milestones met on our Gantt charts. We thought we might, and we're, and we're not. So it doesn't work here. That That's the most common thing we see. Mm-hmm. The other thing we see is the teams say that they are delivering every sprint, exactly what they, what they commit to. Mm-hmm. And yet, the customers are not happy. The recipients of the products are not happy. Those are the two things that I see all the time when organizations say Agile doesn't work for us. So they must be really special because it doesn't work for them, but it works for a lot of people. Oh, by the way, including some of their competitors. It works for them just fine. They're in the same competitive arena that you're in, and yet it works for them. Why doesn't it work for you? What does it mean when they say it doesn't work for them? Let's go there first. You started with two scenarios, which is I'm, I am on two experience and I see no benefit from it, and my customers are not happy. Yeah. Two separate, completely separate statements. Telling me that you have adopted agile practices and that your customers are not happy. I would definitely want to dig into that first because agile in its purest form should be talk directly to the customer, the team that's doing the work, figure out what the customer wants, go off and do that for a couple of days and come back to the customer and then adjust based on what the customer says about the work that you've done. When you say we're the customers are not happy it makes me think that you're doing agile but you've put a firewall in between your teams and the customers you're doing agile but the customers don't get to weigh in but once every i don't know quarter once a year when you have conferences i'm ready to to question to to lightly question lightly question gently with a a white Um, glove question your methods so I just want to go back to the first thing you said, which is the customers are not happy. And are they seeing what they need to see every so often, right? Or are they only engaged once in a while? That's one of the anti-patterns I see is they say, well, the teams are doing good, but our products aren't really that polished. And we really don't want to expose our dirty laundry in front of the customers. So they're not invited to our demos because we don't want to demo this stuff it's just not polished yet you know and so they keep doing this stuff sprint in sprint out until at some point when the customer said what do you have for me i've been waiting patiently Mm -hmm. they look at it and that's when they say chase this isn't what we want Mm -hmm. right because many sprints have gone by now it's too late to quickly pivot organizations that do that typically are the ones that are smarting from this whole experience and they say well i see we tried it 
we tried Azure, it doesn't work for us. Yeah. You didn't really try it. So I think that that line, you didn't really try to be Agile, is pervasive among everybody that I've come across that says Agile doesn't work here. But they didn't. They say, well, we tried it a year ago, two years ago, it didn't work for us. And, and I dig into it and say, what did you try? And they say, well, our teams were doing two-week sprints. Well, who was really kind of feeding into your backlog? Who was looking after the customer's interest? I find there's huge gaps usually there. The customer's not even involved in this big picture in many cases. In many cases, it's internal people just, just basically trying to make sure that their turf, if you will, is protected. Right. And you get this. It's not me, right? It's not me, because look, I've got a backlog. That's all I'm responsible for. Right. The dev teams go, well, we're just popping off the top of the stack, right, yeah. for the backlog. The poor customer says, we're not seeing anything. And then the organization or the leadership says, we tried Agile. You really didn't try Agile. Yeah. And, and so don't say it doesn't work for you, because you didn't do it. I don't see a way to talk about keeping the customer out of the conversation or not showing the customer our process while the, the, the table's all dirty because we got stuff all over the place and we haven't arranged things properly or whatever, other than either ego or fear of not projecting that we have all of our business together and everything in the right places, you know, projecting that we are perfect and we got everything going, you know. So I, I don't know if those are the same thing or they're actually different. I'm really not sure at, at, at this point. But most of the places that I've been that, that, that say, well, you can't, you can't put these developers in front of the customer because they might, they might not be able to give a polished performance and they might not be able to answer all their business questions about where in the future this is going to be or whatever. I'm like, that, I mean, unless you're dealing with some kind of aliens or robots or whatever, like, it's just people dealing with people. So the, most, the best thing we could do is answer their questions honestly. And if we don't know... Or, or if we haven't thought about something, just say that we don't know and we haven't thought about it. Right. On one hand, I want to attribute it to people's egos, like be, uh, especially when, oh, they might make me look bad in front of a customer or the customer might not think, the customer might communicate with somebody else in the company or whatever, and I'm afraid that I, usually saying I, meaning somebody in some sort of supervisory role, referred to as someone who maybe isn't projecting the vision or maybe the whose people don't really know what they're talking about or whatever, and then somehow it will reflect on me. So again, there is some sort of ego, career move, ego consideration that's behind this. You know, keep customers away from XYZ team or whatever. The other side of this is I have to think Ever since we did the podcast on the John Cotter's Leading Change, when Curtis was here, we did a podcast on Leading Change, the book. And um, one of the things he references in Leading Change is the vision that is being pushed by the executives. It needs to be broadcasted out through every layer of the organization. Every time the executives bring up how the work ties back to the vision, they need to be quoting the vision. They need to be referencing the vision. They need to be talking about the vision. They need to be basically repeating the vision over and over and over and over again so that everybody in a whole company is on the same page with that vision. So I want to blame leadership and say part of it is just weak leadership with egos and people who really shouldn't be in that position. However, some of it is the strategy level that should be coming from executives just is not present. And people truly yeah. are. If, if different teams seem to be running at their own speed, it could be that. It could be, hey, Agile doesn't work here because 
agile, which normally should thrive in chaos, doesn't work because we change directions so frequently or, or so much is, is, is in a state of change. Yeah, yeah. That it's, the it's, irony of yeah. that, though, right? That's exactly why you need agile. Except we welcome changing requirements. The issue here is not changing requirements to benefit the customer. The issue here is uh, the management layer of the organization constantly changing their mind and kind of battling between each other and wasting a lot of time building the wrong things because the the viewpoint of the customer is not promoted as the first priority. I, I think that's right. And, you know, I think sometimes, quite often, in fact, leadership are gun shy of failure, right? This fear of failure. So... They do communicate with the customer that we're going to be agile. Mm-hmm. We're going to be responsive to your needs, right? And we'll be emergent. Okay, we'll do all of these things, except they're not really sure how to do this because, again, they we've talked about this before. They didn't get into their positions sure. by becoming agile, right? They got into their positions over the years. Or by failing. Following a plan. Right. And exactly, right? Not failing and all of that, right? Oh, yeah, supposedly not failing. So when... When teams say, hey, look, we need to pivot, they go, no, 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 I've already communicated X, Y, Z to the customer, you can't pivot, right? Right. So part of that is that inner, inbuilt organizational inertia that kind of gets in the way of agile, quote-unquote, working. The other part of it is, and this is, I think, significant as well, is the focus on the wrong things, meaning that when they adopt agile, according to their own definition, mm-hmm. however they're doing it. Oh, yeah, the teams are now on two-week sprints. Whatever they're doing, the metrics that they use to assess whether that shift is working for them or not, it's often cast in this this shroud of self-belief, right? Uh, oh, if we just say the teams will increase the velocity and our agility is working, that kind of thing. So the focus is on that sort of thing, mechanical metrics, like increase velocity increase speed of delivery but are you delivering the right thing as opposed to just delivering things and and not involving the customer's voice right up front so show them something at the end and say is this what you want and they say no and they come back and the customer doesn't really know what they want we thought they said yes to this and now they're saying no guess what we're not going to involve them in future reviews Mm -hmm. those sorts of things right so I think it kind of goes into various directions there when they say it doesn't work here. But the bottom line is they really didn't try to be agile in the sense of being agile, responding to change, which means welcoming change, which means listening to customers, which means involving customers throughout the process. All of that yeah. wasn't there. It was basically, okay, we're going to adopt some practices and therefore we must be agile. Yeah. Right. If you have a deep-seated fear of failure, this is speaking as a product manager, right? If you have a deep-seated fear of failure, like maybe product management is not the job for you. Right? For the people here that may may have randomly found our podcast, if you are afraid of being told that your ideas are all terrible and that they won't work and that you have to prove that they're going to work before you're allowed to do anything on your own. And that is like too, too, <laughs> that, yeah. that is too much for your fragile ego to deal with. Like this is like, you need to get out of product development and find another job like this. It's not going to work. It's just, yeah, it's a bad career field to be in because they, I mean, a lot of times you will come up with ideas that they, they are good ideas. 
and you'll never have the ability to implement them because either the customer market isn't there or the numbers aren't there or the evidence isn't there or or even like this is the, I feel this is the one that isn't talked about it very often is the ability you have to expend to go get those numbers the company's just not willing to even invest yeah. time in that right which stinks because then you don't even get a solid a solid oh this was a good idea but it, it, it doesn't work for our business you don't even get that you get we don't have the money to invest in the time it takes to right. figure out if this is a good you know yeah so if you're afraid of failure you're not likely to experiment right <laughs> because you want certainty that's what you want and certainty only gets you one thing it gets you a cul-de-sac you're gonna go yeah. down a path and that's it you hope your customers there but even if they're there, it's a cul-de-sac. You're not going any f- further, yeah. right? So if you have that, that mentality of avoiding experimentation, you're stifling innovation. You're stifling the possibility of inventing things, mm-hmm. finding a better solution for your customer. Yeah, all of this is just pointing to one thing. Agility doesn't work for you. And it doesn't work for you because you want certainty. Those two things are kind of, paradoxically opposed right you you want certainty guess what don't do agile do you want certainty or do you want control because the difference is i think like power companies or telecoms uh, this is specifically in america because i don't know about outside america but the like the the phone companies or the cable companies or the the internet providers the isps in america uh, the power utilities in america like they're they're all basically monopolies in their area so you want certainty certainty is basically if you live in this geographical area and you want this particular service the certainty is you have the choice. You either get the service or you don't. Right. One provider. That, that's it. That's, that's the that's monopoly. Yeah. So when I think about control, like the need for control, and I think about like the need to reduce uncertainty. Now we're going to our we're we're borderline going into our podcast on plans right now. So I don't know how I don't know how deep we're going to get on this we'll, subject. We'll explore a little, but yeah, yeah, I don't know how deep we're going to get on the subject because you have a whole nother podcast on this specific thing. But the, the fix that grinds against that need for control, that that wears down that need for control, I don't know, it is to basically decentralize. It's to decouple things. Mm-hmm. So that, and then to to basically scale your organization by not scaling, rather than scaling up and down, you scale sideways. Right. You get more product owners. You trust them to do the job that that in the area that they're assigned in the product or the products they're assigned to whatever but that inability to trust which i label as you know the need for control right. like is some organizations that's that is that inability to trust is pitched as a good thing i think of organizations that i've been at that have a lot of i think of the best project managers i've ever worked with that inability to trust yeah but as a as a professional skill the best project managers that I've ever worked with, they don't let you they don't let you slide on anything. If you if if there is something that needs to be done, they will say, Who is going to handle this deliverable? And then when somebody raises their hand finally after staring everyone down, because the best project managers believe it or not, are okay with silence. They will let something linger. Sure. Like I, I've, I've been, most, I would say probably the majority of project managers that I've been around, they have to fill the silence yeah. with with something. But the best ones are comfortable with the silence and then they'll wait for someone to volunteer. And then as soon as a person volunteers, oh, I, I guess I can, I don't think that's a lot, I can deal with it. And then they won't ask, when can you have it back to me by? They will, they will pick a date out of the air and lay it on them and say, well, since you said you can do this, can you have it back to me? It's Friday at 4.30 p.m. 
do you think you can have it back to me by the end of today? Well, that's a generous question. Normally, it's like, you need to have it back to me by this date and time, right? And is there anything you see standing in your way? And you're now thinking about this, thinking, what do I know? Let's take stock. What risks do I? No, you don't. Okay, good. You're on. That's what typically happens. This is classic risk deference. You, these people that do this are deferring the risk of failure from themselves to somebody else on the team, sure. which is really just horrible. Right. Right. And it, and it contributes absolutely to this whole idea of, so it doesn't work here. Well, no, it doesn't yeah, work there. Well, well, once you let's say that you do that professionally. Let's say that you do like you, you're a professional uh, ri- risk delegator. You delegate risks to other people, and then when the risks end up being satisfied and then turn out where there's no risk, then you are a champion. But if the risks fall through and become full blown catastrophes, then the person who failed is on the hook for like this. <laughs> That's right. You've just described project management. It's so slick. Like this is so slick. Uh, if you're, uh, but I brought this up to say the 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 culture where control is the main goal of yeah. the business. That we we feel that we're in control of everything, right? Yeah. There would be culturally an inability to trust culturally because you've got people like that in the organization. Yeah. This is yeah. So this, yeah, this is classic. Old, st- old school, old style project management where a project manager would look at something as a piece of work, break it down and say, this is what needs to happen and assign it to an individual and say, here's your work breakdown mm-hmm. package. Mm-hmm. That's what that's what it was called. That's a real term in project management. WBS, the work breakdown structure. Yeah. So you have a structure that, that basically says, here are the individuals that are assigned this lot of work. And, and the project manager, I don't know why, what makes them qualified for this, but they would decide how much work, the type of work, et cetera, each individual is doing. And again, I just go back to that term, risk deference. They're deferring the risk from themselves because they're the project manager mm. to the doers of work. So these doers can do perfectly well with everything, but it comes down to the prowess and the proficiency of the project manager to say this is the right work to do, the right people to do the work, the right time to do the work, etc. Right? And typically that's not been the case in my experience because these people are not ones that have actually done the work themselves. They don't understand what it takes to do the work. They are a manager of basically a project plan. And you know, the the one question they ask every day is, is it done yet? Yeah. That's the organization that supposedly adopts agility and says agile doesn't work here because that's the ingrained culture you have. Yeah, right. Yeah. With, With a culture like that, I am not even sure where you would start yeah, it's made even worse if all your employee, like if all your individual developers, like team members, what we think of as team members, were all are all contractors, and the project managers are permanent employees. The levels it makes it so insurmountable yeah. at that point. Right. Yeah, I, I I don't even know where I would start for for people listening. I'm trying not to leave people listening to this podcast in complete despair. So we've so far we've just talked about why Agile doesn't work here. Mm-hmm. And we can kind of go to some of the reasons which you've already started doing. So what do you do about that, mm-hmm. right? That That's the next thing, I guess, with those people listening, wondering, where are these two guys going with this stuff? What do you do about that, right? First things first is recognize that 
it's not agile that's not working you're not really doing anything agile you're simply putting labels on it right. look at your scrum masters your newly branded newly minted scrum masters are your project managers that have just been given a new title your product owners do they have a clue about product ownership or are they just people that were there in the organization that were just told hey guess what mary fred joe you're now a product owner yeah. you're not going to succeed by doing that so look at those kinds of things and say really we're not agile we're not doing anything agile so that we cannot expect success if you're in that situation where agile doesn't work there in your organization how do you go forward from there you know after you've got enough gumption built in to say to your leadership whatever it is we're doing it's not working it isn't agile so let's do a couple of small things that are agile right let's get the customer involved and listen to them really listen let's get the teams to say what they can deliver towards what the customer is saying in a given period of time and get early feedback early and constant feedback if you do those things you're well on your way because you're going to find in the longer term medium actually medium to longer term mm-hmm. you are successful compared to what you're doing today and claiming that it's agile and you're not being successful the battle though you're going to have i have to say is not with your teams it is probably also not with your customers the battle you're going to have the challenges you face will be with your senior to executive leadership because those people have the fixed mindset of how work is done in yeah. the C- the command and control right. cnc environment you need to break those shackles and that is easier said than done this is where you need somebody to come in and say i've been telling the same things to our leaders but when somebody from outside comes in and says exactly the same thing it may have a shot at being successful because now it's from another source from outside the organization yeah. right a supposedly perceived expert let's talk about that one because that's a uh, where people either start their agile journey or they their agile journey gets reinvigorated or gains steam or gains momentum is sponsorship usually what i hear is well, we have this person in the executive team or we just the company just hired this CIO or CXO, whatever, whatever it is. And they came from a company that used Agile and now they're here and they think it's important. So they're, they made a case. They're bringing in product owners. They're bringing in scrum masters. Maybe they're bringing in Agile coaches. So there is a sponsor on uh, at the C level. Right. Who's sponsoring the whole Agile initiative at the company. The other thing I've heard is we had these great processes and the company really believed in it. And then when this person from the C level left, Everything went downhill. Yeah. Uh, but the ones that have been most successful, obviously, have been both. Yeah. Bottom down, sponsored, while at the same time, a strong initiative from the bottom up. So meet them in the middle type of deal. The only people in there that are squeezed are the middle managers who are, hey. That's a real dilemma with the middle managers because, again, just like senior leaders, middle managers got to where they are from the old ways of working. Mm-hmm. But we can help. We can help with that. We can help redefine their roles. We can help them by defining the roles that are different now for for middle managers than before. So they're no longer command and control. They're yeah. not. They're no longer, you know, asking the team or demanding of the team why something isn't done. 
based on some arbitrary timeline to pivoting toward enabling the teams making sure they have the right skill sets right yeah. to do their jobs so manage the the team in terms of their requirements right for skills for example making sure that they have what they need in terms of resources systems etc etc they're enablers in that sense they're no longer quote unquote managers you know managing anything at that stage the team is managing themselves but you are an enabler you're really making sure that they the team has everything they need in order to succeed yeah. huge shift easier to say in a few seconds but yeah. mind shift out of a lot of transformations and and even the cases i just outlined where i kind of left them out of it this is this is probably pretty easy to take into consideration the the middle manager if you actually if you train the middle managers as if you were training like get them all together right i i i'm also making some assumptions that your company is not massive at this point because if your company's tens of thousands of employees like okay maybe <laughs> maybe that's not gonna work but also what are you transforming in an agile transformation Let, let's say you have a thousand people in your company mm-hmm. uh, i'm gonna go big on this one what, what if what if you have a thousand people in your company how many middle managers do you have in a company of a thousand uh, yeah, 200 let's say 200 at the most right okay well out of that 200 how many are in the segment of the organization that's, that's quote going agile right now right okay maybe 10 percent. so yeah. 20 20 middle managers yeah okay well maybe we can take those 20 middle managers break them into two segments have two teams of 10 maybe we can make them enabler teams that unblock and mm-hmm. accelerate other teams and now they have a new job purpose but if we don't train them on what their new role is now that we've quote taken all their employees away taken yeah. all their resources away Right. right. If, if we don't train them on what their new job is, of course, all they're going to do full time is fight the process. Sure. Yeah, of course, that's what they're going to do because they're not they're being left out of the vision. They're not being given new tools to succeed. Like, uh, I'm expecting that these people are still left in those positions because they're they, they've proven themselves at the company. They, they have maybe they have leadership skills, stuff yeah. like that. They're successful as employees. Probably is a good part of probably why they're there. Yep. So th- like you're in a typical agile transformation that i think of i've been trying not to use the word agile transformation in this right. podcast in a typical transformation these people are left out because the transformation has has no place for these people all the scaling models i can think of ha- have no place for these people yeah i think you're right i think from the perspective of those those middle managers they feel like a loss of control a, a loss of worth right that's right. Well, you know you, self-worth i mean you had it right the unwillingness to decentralize i think you had it right like the part of the unwillingness to decentralize comes from you have this the glue between the top of your organization yeah. and the bottom of your organization it's not really top and bottom but you know, the, i guess the glue between upstream in your organization and downstream in your organization it doesn't i'm not really making right. any yeah, better i, I turned it mean, sideways i'm not really making any better between head but, and tail yeah the, yeah, the glue between mean. yeah the glue between the pieces yeah and again all your models do this even when you go to CSM, even when you go to your introductory CSM, they do this. Oh, you don't need all this. Middle managers, it's all waste. Lean thinking. It's all waste. I mean, well, I mean, let's stop for a second. Like, is it waste? Because from my perspective, when you start talking about scaling and put all these controls in and this overhead in place, like, actually, if we think about it for a second, if the middle management enabling teams were doing their job, you wouldn't need all that waste. Right. Because we can just take the people we already have in the organization and just kind of teach them, hey, 
when stuff fall, falls through the cracks, when communication just kind of falls through, fall through the cracks, well, you're talking to everyone because you get a view across teams because you're the enabling team now. Right. But also, since you're probably still the traditional hiring managers and you probably still are doing reviews and stuff like that, you also get to have a deeper interaction with the individuals. So you, you're seeing both sides. So actually, you kind of are perfectly placed to not let things fall through the cracks. If the organization treats those folks that way you know because oftentimes what happens is they're being told well so and so that used to work for you and so and so else and so and so else they're now not doing that so the middle managers immediately feels they're saying loss of control by thinking i don't have as many direct reports as i did before and that that goes to another i know we're going to talk about this this incentives thing but that goes to a different factor Right in in their quote unquote their performance at their job, it shouldn't be defined by the number of direct reports they have. It should be defined really purely at the same level as everybody else on the team, or even at the same level as as they are, middle managers. And then wait for it, those to those of you that are listening, even the leadership people should be defined at the same scale, meaning how are we delivering to our customers? That's it, mm-hmm. nothing else, mm-hmm. right? So when those managers that say, well, I had 50 people reporting to me, now I only have 25 or 30 people. Jeez, what am I gonna do, right? Yeah. I'm actually being demoted here, I'm not, I'm not as valuable. I don't feel like I'm making forward progress in the organization because shouldn't I have more mm-hmm. as I go up? That's that thinking needs to be turned on its head and say, I need to let go. You used the word decentralization right. earlier. Need to let go. Let trust people to get the job done and get out of their way. But yeah. make sure that if there's anything you can do to help them, you're there for that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's not really meant as a statement on anything. Who wants to work for leadership where the where they have the inability to trust? Right. I mean, we're talking about micromanagers at this point. Like, absolutely. If they're not micromanagers, they they have this overbearing meth- methods of control in place in the organization where they, they can't they can't let anything go. Or where you're going is you're you're going down the road of using incentives as a positive thing mm-hmm. to propel us through to agility to, to 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 further develop our agility. Yeah. Usually, what I see is the company will talk the talk they might even walk some of the steps in the walk they might adjust developments incentives to be more team focused yeah but then the rest of the business you know sales marketing the executives hr it's like they don't even know that those different pieces of the organization exist with regard to their incentives the biggest easiest one to spot here for me is sales because they get judged on their ability to sell things but sell things that is in our software versus sell things that are not in our software doesn't really matter as long as they close a deal. Right. And rightfully so, I will, like, I don't know why I'm defending sales for a second. The The business will say, like, sales is the, they're the lifeblood of the organization. They're the, they're the. I'd say that's wrong. I'll that's, tell you why. That's, that's what, that's you what can executives have a very, very healthy book of sales, right? But if you're not delivering and your pipeline is blocked, then. Yeah, your salespeople are booking orders all day long and they're collecting their commissions. How is that really helping the organization? I've 
been lucky enough to be part of one organization where I saw this change over a few years, where sales would not get their commission on signing the contract. They would get a tiered set of like, events for their commission. So yes, they'll get a little bit when they sign the order, that's fine. And then when the software is delivered in what they call drops, software drops over time until go live, but that wouldn't be the final commission either. It would be go live plus, right? So the white glove period, whatever you call it, all of that hypercare, all of that is done and dusted and that's when they get their last yeah, chunk yeah, of yeah. their commission. The whole point of why I'm saying this is because it makes the sales organization, well, there's two points I wanna make here. One is it makes the sales organization vested in the process. And the second thing is they will not go out and promise the earth because they know they won't get the commission if it doesn't get delivered. Right. So what it did in, in my experience is it brought them closer to the delivery side of the house, right? So they started saying, well, come out on sales calls with us and make sure that when the customer says, we want your software to do X, Y, Z, that it can do that. Or if it can't do that, let's be upfront and say, we have to make custom changes. Yeah. What does that look like? Well. You'll have, you'll have to pay for some of these, right? Or all of these, yeah. depending on what the organization is willing to, where, where they're willing to meet the customer. So that was great because the customer knows going into it before they sign the contract, mm -hmm. what they're gonna get, right? And the salesperson knows that, the delivery organization knows that. So I think that was a very good compromise situation right there, mm -hmm. it worked really well. The downside of it was back in the day when you know, sales jobs were prolific. I mean, they, they lots and lots. They would say, I'm not gonna be here long enough to see the rest of my commission. Right. Why don't I get everything now? And we're like, that's exactly why not. Because you're gonna promise the earth sure. that we can't deliver, you'll collect your money and go, right? So yeah, so those are the two points I wanna make about this yeah. this this particular topic. Well, this that's exactly the same reason why in, in the Working Backwards Amazon book, the, yeah. like the executive incentives, like no, none of them are short term. None of the executive incentives are short term. Yeah. They're all in company stock, which is realized over a longer term. I mean, I guess you can get company stock and sell it immediately or whatever, but I mean, why would you do that? Right. Uh, you're not vested that, at that yeah. point either. I mean, like any stock, <clears throat> any stock you wouldn't do that with because it's, it's stock. You know that time in market is better than everything else. The reason I bring that up is I feel about the same thing I feel about the Amazon giving their executives stock, the idea that it's long-term, you need to commit to the company long-term. You're not just looking in like this typical sales guy comes in and he's six months, I'm looking for another job because right. like, why would I try to sell anything when your stuff is, I gotta sell it, but then I gotta kind of shepherd it through the adoption process and I gotta make sure that there's engagement and I gotta work with maybe a sales engineer or product people or whatever to make sure the software is easy to use, easy to start using, you know what I mean? Easy to adopt at the customer. They're kind of invested in all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, the pushback on this one, it's, it's, it's very superficial in my opinion, but it is pushback is I can just jump to another company where they, they give me my incentive. Like as soon as the paper signed, as soon as the ink is, while the ink is still wet, I'm getting paid. True, very true, but you won't be there long because this is gonna be self-fulfilling, right? So you won't be there long, yeah. you'll move on. Nobody and, and will be so, there long, right. But you know, I think as we're talking about this, this incentives issue here, imagine for a second if the way the sales organizations incented, the salespeople are incented, was mirrored in the way your delivery people are incented as well. Yeah. 
Yeah. Right. So if you do that, what happens in the long run, it would be remiss in not mentioning this. What would happen in the long run is the customer is happy because the salespeople didn't promise what could not be delivered. They stayed throughout the process with the customer. The delivery organization is happy because of what I just said. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to deliver what could not be delivered. Right. right. So it was real. They could do it piecemeal make sure that they're organized they're actually involved with the customer throughout so they're learning about the needs and inspecting and adapting yeah. that's the agile angle here long term what will happen is you will have loyalty from that customer you'll have repeat business right and you would have great references mm -hmm. that sounds all great and utopian and everything but to your point sales people do not want to wait that long typically they want they want their commission now. I, they want I, I get it but like do you do you want to be part of something that's do you want to be part of something big do you want to build something big if you have happy customers and you're getting great references aren't you now in the realm of the marketing department but like hey do you are, do you really enjoy using our software tell, tell me about how it helps you and then to sit down with them and get some testimonials I think if you are lucky enough to really be solving real problems for a customer like now yeah. Uh, I think your marketing department should be doing backflips and should be promoting that. Well, yeah. You know, like the sound of music. They should be singing it from e from every corner of every hill yeah. uh, that, that people are doing a good job. But, you know, how often have you, have you seen that, though? You know, how often have you seen the hills are alive? It's rare because of that short-term versus long-term thinking. Right, yeah. Where short-term always, nearly always, trumps. Oh, I'll, I'm glad you went there because I wasn't going to go there because I was like, oh, the marketing people have even shorter tenure than the salespeople. They so. do. They <laughs> do. They do. I, a lot of it, a lot of the times it, it might be, I'm positing again, it might be due to frustration because they kind of caught between the customer and the sales organization right. or the actual organization itself, right? right? Where they're saying, hey, jump, right? Right now. Yeah. We have these, these quotas to meet. Yeah. The incentives for the development teams usually the way that that lags is you are all of your we talked about this on another podcast usually the way i've seen that that lags is all of your developers have their one-time yearly reviews but then they go back to their sitting on their scrum team where they're just a member and they contribute to the sprint goals and they work on things together and they maybe they're doing XP. Maybe they're actually, yeah. <laughs> it'd be different if they were judge measured as a team, but then they also got some sort of individual, I don't know, one-on-one -on -one type of counseling kind of professional yeah. development focused type of stuff. But it's it's not that. It's, 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 they are a team, but then the team is never counseled. Right. right. I think the reward system is, is very individualistic, right, to your point. And, and some people have, different clauses i guess right for their reward mechanism so so somebody might be told okay th this is your base salary right. and then you have this 20 percent flex pay which means if you really meet all your objectives that we will decide if you meet them or not then you could get up to 20 percent of your salary for mm -hmm. example i'm just using 20 as an example mm -hmm. um and, and so then when you look at that who is getting those versus who is not I'm willing to say your your dev team members, your developers, testers, etc., probably aren't. Yeah. Your architects or your if you're at a progressive organization, maybe your tech leads. But usually, it's it's the managers that are getting those. Yeah. So if the development team delivers time and time again, then the managers get rewarded. 
there is definitely some sort of imbalance yeah, that's here. A, that's a problem. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's a problem. I'm also specifically thinking about it. Something that doesn't really fit in this in this topic, but I wanted to I wanted to bring up anyway, which is if you don't have a a resource manager, right? Like a typical piece people manager. Yeah. If you don't have a people manager making the determination of what bonuses and what raises to give people at the end of every year, like if, if we're truly doing incentives team-based, right, and, it, and you somehow can figure out a way to delegate this to be up to the team to deal with, and this assumes also that you don't have hiring managers, that matrix environment that kind of loans people out, to, that, that teams truly are, like instead of the matrix environment where like resources are loaned, I'm gonna loan you my stapler for a couple yeah. weeks. Yeah, yeah research it alone. Yeah, copy paper, yeah. Or stapler. Well, yeah. to, but people belong to teams, and they the groups, the groupings. They're members of teams. And they're not really like members of other. There's not other organizations going on. There might be other communities going on that people voluntarily join, but people are employed at the company to be part of that team. That is their specific purpose. Whereas the a truly decentralized type of organization, large companies do this. Large companies have databases. They they buy pay salary and pay information stuff like that, and they have a low point, a midpoint, high point for salary stuff like that. I'm trying to envision in my head, like something that an HR person could do on a team. Somehow would be, you know, hey, we've got this person on the team, and they're low, mid, high point in the salary bands. Because uh, assuming that the salary bands maybe they're not hidden but also maybe the company's not going out of their way to say like this position makes exactly this much money like even if you just had the metric of low mid high to the salary band say hey these people are in the software engineering salary band and along the software engineering salary band employee a employee b employee c employee d like a and b are both in the mid b is in the low and c is in the high and then when you come to some sort of like 360 review where people rate each other's performance. I don't know how you would distribute salary uh, bonuses. You know what I mean? That kind of stuff. I don't know how you distribute that to the team to let them do it themselves. But also because companies like we kind of talked about the need for control and stuff like that. Like this, I feel when we cross this chasm, the very last thing that'll be hanging on by a rope, like down hanging in the chasm somewhere will be the exact amount of money people make for working in a job role because companies are companies will fight tooth and nail to, to, to not yeah, to talk about that, that. Yeah, to yeah, protect exactly. that. So if, if is there a way you could, I don't know, some kind of mechanism you could say, oh, this person's in the low band, well, maybe we should bring them at least up to the mid band or whatever. Like, I, I don't know. I think this it is, can be done. I, I don't think this is rocket science, honestly. I, I think a lot of it is just inertia and old school thinking, even among HR people. Now, yeah. that is slightly changing. I've seen some rays of hope there, but... For the majority of organizations out there, it's to your point, yeah, protect what someone is making, right? Uh, and leave it up to the individual to rise up. And that's why there's so much, what's the word for this? Lack, I guess, of innovation. People wanting to better themselves because they don't, they don't know if this is going to be worth it. Would I just not ride out my year two years and then just change jobs because I can instantly go somewhere else and get a $30,000 raise. What's ironic about this, in my view, is the same HR organization that is not willing to invest in their own people are willing to give others that they're bringing in a $30,000 raise. That's 
insane yeah. because you've got someone new coming in as opposed to someone who has domain knowledge who's vested in your company so i i think it can be done though to your point but to do this the essential thing that has to happen is to let go of that control of saying we decide how much you make or you make yeah. it's leave it up to the teams the 360 that you mentioned let the teams look at each other and say look how do we do yeah and what will come out of that is that those people that either are more senior just because of their depth of experience or those people that went the extra mile right those people will be voted higher mm -hmm. by their peers and hr can easily come up with some sort of a scale that says based on how they're voted is how we will peg their salary increase per per year or whatever it is right ideally though i what i would love to see is bring that customer in to that 360 mm -hmm. and then make that decision on a project by project basis mm -hmm. rather than on a yearly basis because sometimes you have bad times yeah. and it's unfair to penalize people that are good intentioned very hard-working people and through no fault of their own things didn't work out for a project so that would be interesting to, to see in real life you know an organization going through that kind of exercise yeah I could see, uh, you know, every sprint, I could see measuring that, you know, basically every sprint review measuring that, or maybe it doesn't have to be tied with the sprint review event, no. but every, basically at the end of every iteration, taking that measurement. Yep. So that at the end of the year, assuming you're doing two week sprints or whatever, you've got uh, 24, 26 measuring points. You have somewhere around 20 some measuring points per person. So you have a fair bit of data per person that your HR can come away with yeah and make their determination your team even if everyone contributes their piece and it's just kept separately for one person to make the determination i i feel at least then the one person that's making the determination is making the determination based off of some data as opposed to how i've seen it done which is whoever quote owns all the quote resources yeah just decides who they like the best and who they who they want to quit and who they don't care if they quit. No, Absolutely agree. Uh, you know, I think that for this sort of mechanism to work, one thing that is paramount is to keep team churn to a minimum because it isn't just the person who leaves. Right. It, it is the fact that they left and now the team is back into forming. So yeah. it's going to impact everybody. So again, that can be factored in by that person who is looking at this oh boy we we well wow what a huge hole in the topic that we were talking about like we completely forgot to talk about when management keeps shuffling your teams like that's a whole different podcast but yeah when like agile doesn't work here but also we don't have teams that are committed to working on products oh well, I don't know, we don't even have products but if you're not willing to <laughs> designate teams meaning a group of individuals. <laughs> There's a concept that I'm hearing now about fluid teams where people just oh, yeah. fl flip over the place all the time. If you're not dedicated to having dedicated individuals who comprise a dedicated team working on a dedicated product or set of products, you're going to have a big, big difficulty implementing Agile for the first, you know, like I could even be convinced that once you're doing that well, the, what I just said, dedicated people on teams that don't change, knocking out products that are dedicated to those teams. And once you do that, then maybe you can start shifting people around and making your teams a bit more fluid over time. Once you've proven that you know how to do 
the the first right. set of things. Right, because you would have matured by then. Yeah. Sadly, though, what I see all the time is people that are shared across different teams, different projects, unrelated often, right? And then they're measured. Like, okay, how did you do against right. your yeah. personal development plan or whatever, whatever the heck it is? You cannot do that. Everybody has yeah. to row on that boat together. So if you're going to put somebody in some other role for part of their time and then say you're 10 hours here and 30 hours here, but in reality it's a lot less than that because of context switching and all that. Yeah, It just works counterculture to what we're trying to do here. Five hours on project A, five hours on project B, right. 10 hours on project C. Right. <laughs> you add up all that and, and you're and working over 130%. And more, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. those are you, those, but I, I tell you, in like in large organizations, those are your rock stars. Oh, yeah, for sure. They have potential uh, management, promotion potential written all over them. They're willing to be your rock stars. Those, those are organizations that, that reward having an over-busy calendar as a good thing. 60-plus right? hours per week, yeah. rock stars. Yeah. We've gone so far from Agile doesn't work here. The last thing we have is the concept of I'll I'll, well, I'll let you I'll let you deal with this one on because oh, no. it's a great one. <laughs> it's it's the concept of being hoodwinked into adopting Agile. Oh A- yes, Agile doesn't work here because we were we were tricked in the first place. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So again, this is something that I've seen way too often. Going into organizations that say Agile doesn't work here. So what did you try? Well, we were told if we do these things, we'd be Agile. And I look at that and go, yeah, you were sold a bill of goods there. So hoodwinked is a good is a good phrase. You had somebody who was maybe you know SPCT, SPC, whatever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be that religion. Someone, Could be any religion. Someone who makes somebody, their money right, awful. who has a vested interest in the avenue they're pointing you down, yeah. and they come in and say, if you do this, thou shall be agile. And here's the real kicker: How long do they hang around? They don't stay with you shoulder to shoulder. They simply say, do this. Trust me on this. I'm going to train everybody in your organization in the free side of things in this particular way of working. And once I've done that, you're going to be agile. And when they do that, they leave Mm -hmm. because they've made their money. They make their money based on certifying people, etc. So this is what I mean by being hoodwinked. The other way I'd say people get hoodwinked into it is the, the product side of the house. People come in and say, oh, you need this you need this and oftentimes they have the lingo so the organizations like oh wow, he's credit or she is credible right they talk about domain based design wow what is that so they get people into a room and they talk about domain based design at the end of the day it isn't anything different it's just cast the same thing in different language and they say if you're doing this you're agile and then they're gone my whole point of both of these examples is these people that come in aren't staying with the organization long enough for them to actually start the turnaround process, let alone actually mature down that path. They're long gone. So that's what I mean. You've been sold a bill of goods. You've been hoodwinked into agility. And just because they came in, no matter how credible they are, you think you're agile now, right? Because you paid a lot of money. And this is where it's a double-edged sword for leadership too because if a leader brought in somebody and paid them a ton of money to come in and say, this is what we need to do, Mm -hmm. and then they're gone, 
that leader doesn't want to be the first one to say, hey, look, I failed. I That's shouldn't right. have brought that person in. That's right. It's a sunk cost fallacy is actually what it is. But to me, it's a fixed mindset kicking pretty hard to say, well, I can't I can't admit failure on this one. I can't admit that I spent all this money to send my product people to product school or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> product school? I don't know if there's a thing. But, <laughs> I know what uh, you mean, though. You know, I sent half of my developers a CSM, two days CSM, and then told them they can't talk to anybody leadership and told them I wasn't going to change any of the centralization of my organization. So they can't basically can't do their job. And uh, you know now suddenly I I gotta say hey we're agile I gotta try to sell that we're agile you know even though all we have clearly done is uh, change some labels you know change our project management office to program management office but we're doing everything exactly the same but but you know they brought in some big big names they brought in the likes of McKinsey or right. Bain that came in and said here's a model here's a 7s model and they and they got ordained into this model and then the consultants have gone yeah right so now it's okay it's time to implement oh there's nobody there to help you with that right but but we must be agile because we paid that organization the consultants a lot of money Mm -hmm. and we cannot be seen as having failed as leaders the reason i don't have great suggestions here is because my experience in this category it was exactly what you just said. Some SPC came in at a company I was at, and the company was trying to figure out Agile, which was a bottom-up approach. It wasn't really sponsored by anyone, you know, C-level or whatever. And the entire executive team was gone for I mean, what I swore was a whole week, but I, I, maybe it was two days. And I'm pretty sure they all came back with their safe Agile certifications. They all came back with their little placards, and they're like, look, we got placards. This is what we're going to do now. We're going to have trains, and we're all going to jump on the train, choo-choo, and uh, we're going to plan 12 weeks or whatever. No, it was 10 weeks, but the one one week was like a yeah, the innovation, innovation sprint. sprint. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, it, but the innovation sprint was not at the beginning. It was at the end. <laughs> but, yeah, he's like, oh, our sprints are two weeks in length. We're going to plan out five sprints and then have an innovation sprint after the – after the fifth for a total of 12 weeks. And as a middle manager in the organization where my team members were all part of different scrum teams, I remember fighting a lot about like, this is ridiculous because we don't spend enough time in planning as it is. So you, whatever you plan the first sprint, like the second, third sprint is just going to be doing all the rollover from the first sprint. Right. And I like, I have metrics to back it up, but any pushback against this, because again, the entire executive team went to the safe training. So sure. people that normally don't interact with software development went to the safe training. The chief marketing officer, the chief revenue officer, the executive, the chief operations, they all went and they were told, this is how your product portfolio works and this is how your development trains work and this, right. is, this is the way it's done. So you, you plan your stuff and at the end of the train, you get your release. So in the first sprint, we sat down in our big room planning to plan the, before the first sprint started. And it was an absolute train wreck, pun intended. And nothing in the first sprint was delivered because the leadership said, like, here are the things you're going to do in the first sprint. Like, they just dictated, yeah. here, here are the yeah. things you need to do. And the, the first sprint was like, build an entire mobile app. It was just, just ridiculous things that you would never... It, it was obvious to me at the time that it wasn't something that could be done. But even if it could have been done in a sprint worth of work, it was putting a whole lot of development on one single developer. Build an Android mobile app. Okay, well, what, 
the company has one Android mobile developer. So one Android mobile developer is going to go off in a corner by himself for a whole sprint. And at the end of the sprint, he's going to come out and he's going to hold the tablets above his head. No, here's what I produced. That That's uh, yeah, ridiculous, right? It and, is. But the idea was the executives were so unwilling to hear any detractors to their plan. We went back. We got this placard. We paid all this money. We know it's going to work. Go do this. By the way, did not train anybody else in the company. Only the executives got trained and came back and said, we're going to run a PI planning now, and you guys are going to deliver in PIs. So think about this. That was my first introduction to SAFE was somebody, some SPC or somebody came in and not only sold them on the training, you need to pay me X thousands of dollars for this training, but also they pitched these executives so well, they went back and tried to change the whole company to the whole company meaning just the development department because no other department of the company was changed by this. No other department was affected by this. Only development. Again, if you're talking about getting hoodwinked, (laughs) this is probably a great example about like they felt since, hey, we pay good money to some consultant Mm -hmm. and uh, they said you guys should be able to plan this PI and be able to plan the next 12 weeks and we told you what you need to do. It was a disaster. It was a a bunch of people left. You know, I mean, it was a complete disaster. Yeah, but you know, the people that brought in the the person who basically launched this whole concept of using safe, etc., and trained everybody, they're not the ones that would admit that they failed, right? That that's the problem. That they're not going to admit that because if they admit that, that's like that's a career suicide for them. Yeah. Yeah, So they won't do it. They'll just say, "Well, we're going to keep going," right? So we've done this, we're gonna keep going. Oh no, we don't have all the prerequisites of how to make safe work. We don't have dedicated people in all these roles. What's an RTE? We don't have one of those. Just find somebody with a pulse and go, you're an RTE now, right? And this poor person who gets nominated to be an RTE has no idea what it means, save a few Google searches. So guess what? It doesn't work. This is going back to our podcast topic. Agile doesn't work here. Well, guess what? can't work there because mm-hmm. you really didn't invest in it properly right. you were in that last example that we've been talking about the last few minutes you were hoodwinked into it by those that have vested interests mm-hmm. basically you need to make sure that you bring in people that do not have that people that are really looking at your problem specifically and they are agnostic of a given framework etc yeah. a given approach in the hardest message for you to swallow would be when they say you're not ready yet for agile anything forget safe or whatever it is you're not ready you need to invest in these areas first i long for the day when i deliver that message on my way out the door yeah i was gonna say that's the right thing to do that would certainly be your way out of the door both from the client and from the consulting firm because i can't think of a single consulting firm that would ever say hey agile is not right for you in the current way the organization is shaped and operating right. like this is we're not going to take this contract like this is not it's not going to be successful in the long run well if you're a company and you're looking to hire somebody to do your software development for you or whatever or, or to try to teach you how to do agile if you're trying to do that i'd make sure that their incentives their pay their milestones whatever it is are tied to your you know, success yeah your yeah. success yeah. So specifically your success with your customers and your success in terms of the efficiency and productivity of your development effort after they have exerted their influence 
and their efforts uh, onto your company. Yeah, I'd say don't be vested in the next Nazi thing, right? Just look for people that will really advise you with your interests at heart as opposed to their own interests at heart. Well, I think we've cracked the code. If we've helped you or not helped you, please let us know. Let us know either way. And let us know what else you'd like to hear about. And subscribe and like that button down there.